Paranormal Northwest, a podcast all about the history and the paranormal of the Pacific Northwest. Join me as I tell stories of this great region, the history, the people who live here, and those who may have never left. Welcome to 2023, or at least our first episode of 2023. This year, I plan on investing more time into my research and planning, which will hopefully allow for better episodes. My plan is to consistently release one episode a month on the last Friday of each month. We are still rotating through the Pacific Northwest. Today, we're taking a look at what many call Washington's most haunted house. We're traveling to Port Gamble, Washington, to the Walker Ames house. So grab your sweater, your blanket, and a cup of tea, and let's get started. The Walker Ames house is supposedly the most haunted house in all of Washington. A simple Google search comes up with headlines such as, Inside a Haunted House in Port Gamble, Washington's Most Haunted House, and even the Walker Ames house is one of the most haunted in America. But no place just springs into existence. Everything and every place has a history. Located on the Kitsap Peninsula, Port Gamble, Washington is a small coastal community near Hood Canal. The western origins of Port Gamble date back to the Wilkes Expedition in 1841. The Wilkes Expedition was tasked with surveying and exploring the Pacific Ocean and the lands it touched that were primarily controlled by the Americans. Plans for the expedition were originally started in 1828 by then-President John Quincy Adams. Funding for the project was not passed by Congress for another eight years, though, and the expedition was officially authorized in May of 1836 by President Andrew Jackson. The Wilkes expedition was primarily a scientific expedition and focused largely on oceanography. At the time, oceanography was a very new scientific field. The expedition was in the Pacific Northwest during the spring and summer of 1841. It is thought that the name Port Gamble is after Lieutenant Colonel John M. Gamble, who fought in the War of 1812. The expedition also made strides with building relationships with the native people they encountered. In the Port Gamble area, the expedition encountered the Squamish people. The local Squamish people traditionally lived on the western side of Puget Sound on the Olympic Peninsula. Like many of their neighbors, they enjoyed the rich bounty the Sound and Inlet provided them. They lived in large wooden log houses, and the largest longhouse in the world was located near the present-day city of Squamish. After the Wilkes expedition, Port Gamble was founded as a company town by the Puget Mill Company in 1853. The Puget Mill Company was founded as Pope and Talbot Inc., a lumber company based out of San Francisco. Due to the California gold rush, there was a huge surge in the lumber production from the Pacific Northwest. The lumber that was powering the boom towns of the California gold rush came from the Puget Sound. Pope and Talbot saw this opportunity and took it. By the mid-1850s, there were over two dozen sawmills in the region. Pope and Talbot looked into the new Oregon Territory for the lumber that was needed, not just in California, but all over the country and all over the world. In the summer of 1853, they were looking along the Puget Sound for a location to establish a sawmill. They settled on Gamble Bay, which offered both an abundance of trees as well as the access needed to ship the lumber. Even though there was plenty of materials and work to be done, the territory was scarcely populated at that time. With the help of a business partner in Maine, 
Pope and Talbot were able to recruit experienced mill workers from East Machias in Maine. East Machias is a small town in the southeastern part of the state of Maine, 3,000 miles across the continent. These workers traveled to the new territory, but quickly became homesick. As the town of Port Gamble began to build up around the mill, the buildings began to reflect what might be seen in a New England town, just like the one the workers left behind. The mill established by Pope and Talbot in 1853 became the longest operating lumber mill in North America. At its height, lumber from Port Gamble was being shipped all over the world. The mill was sold in 1925, but the new owner was unable to make payments. By 1940, the company was back under the control of the Pope family. Pope and Talbot, Inc. was in business until about 2008, when the company filed for bankruptcy. Today, the town they built, Port Gamble, is one of the smallest towns in Washington State, with a population of less than 1,000 people. Taking a step backwards, let's look at the lumber industry in the Pacific Northwest. Growing up and living here, we often forget how magnificent all of these tall evergreens are. They are just something we're used to. There's a reason Washington is called the Evergreen State. For thousands of years, people have lived with and among the evergreens littering the landscape, from the coast to the Cascades. Prior to 1848, the native people of the Pacific Northwest managed the trees in the region. They cut down trees for building buildings, boats, and even clothing. One of my favorite fun facts is that many native groups along the coast would create clothing out of cedar bark. Cedar is one of the best naturally water-repellent lumbers. They would create hats and coats out of the bark, as well as using the lumber to create canoes and longhouses. As European explorers began to enter the region, they were awed by the density and size of the forests. During the off-season at Fort Vancouver, the men of the fort would clear trees and mill the lumber to sell back east. After the California gold rush, a new wave of entrepreneurs flooded the region, looking to make a profit from the valuable timber. Many small towns sprang up in these areas, established as company towns by the mills. The mills were often owned by larger companies based in San Francisco or even the East Coast. These company towns, just like Port Gamble, were often bare-bones settlements. They provided the mill workers with very rough accommodations almost like what we would consider a summer camp, but with a lot more work. The mills needed special permission to log the land, as much of it was still considered federal land. Once the permission was obtained, they would establish the company town that consisted of bunkhouses and a mess hall. Most of the men who worked in the mills were single, who traveled with the industry. Once the timber was all cut in an area, they would pack up the camp and move on to another area. The dense forests were a treasure to some, and an obstacle to many others. Those looking to settle in the territory had to clear these lands to make way for farming. Many even thought that the land was unfarmable. This may be why much of the area first settled in western Washington was the fertile valleys coming from the Cascades. By the 1880s, the lumber industry was continuing to grow in power. With the completion of the Northern Pacific Railroad in 1883, it made it even easier to transport lumber across the country. The 1880s also brought technological advancements to the logging industry, such as the donkey engine. This time period also saw more settlement in the region, many of whom came from the Midwest.
These Midwestern transplants brought their knowledge of Great Lakes lumber industries to the region, with the most famous being Frederick Weyerhaeuser in 1900. By the early 1900s, the lumber industry was Washington State's largest employer, and timber and its byproducts were the largest export. As the West was settled, many people began to realize that these inexhaustible resources it contained were, in fact, exhaustible. Even though many early industrialists in Washington felt that the timber would never be fully depleted, both the government and private companies began to protect the state's forests. In the early 1900s, President Theodore Roosevelt envisioned a federal entity that would protect and conserve lands across the nation. That vision was put in place in 1916, when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Organic Act, designating a National Park Service. The National Park Service now contains 424 sites spanning across the country. Washington State is home to 15 sites within the National Park System, including Mount Rainier National Park and Olympics National Park. Over 7 million people visit these parks annually. These conservation efforts have allowed much of Washington State's forests to stay in place, even with the lumber industry continuing to thrive in the state. The Walker Ames House was built in the late 1880s. I found records that it was built for William Walker, the sawmill's master mechanic, and also that the superintendent of the mill, Cyrus Walker, built it. Although exactly who built it is unclear, it was passed down to the mill's manager, Edwin Ames, when he married into the Walker family. Thus, the house became the Walker Ames House. However, I would like to note that the plaque in front of the house notes that it was built by William and that he was the manager of the mill. So, perhaps there's truth in both versions of the story? The large Victorian house was built on a hill overlooking both the town of Port Gamble as well as Gamble Bay. Built from lumber from the mill, as well as stained glass and other furnishings from the east coast, the home was the largest and most expensive in all of Port Gamble. The house was used for the home for mill officers until the mill closed in 1995. Now, on to the paranormal activity. Two small children are seen peeking out of the attic windows. Even when the house is vacant, paranormal investigators and other guests have also experienced the children's spirits in the attic. Investigators often leave toys and games for the children to play with, and when they return, the toys are moved. There have also been instances of shadows being seen, as well as the sounds of children laughing and playing. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might know the one thing that freaks me out is kid spirits. The child spirits at the Walker Ames house are also incredibly active, and they're not alone. On average, every six weeks, the figure of a woman is also seen in the attic. She is presumed to be a former nanny, still looking after her charges. And she's not only seen through the attic window. During an investigation one night, an investigator heard the sound of someone moving behind him. When he turned to look, there stood the woman. She seemed just as startled to see the group of investigators as they were to see her, and they watched her disappear before their eyes. Female visitors to the house have reported their hair and jackets being pulled when in the basement. The Port Gamble Paranormal Society hosts tours of the house and the whole town year-long. They also have paranormal investigations year-round, 
which I am definitely adding to my summer bucket list. That's all for the Walker Ames House in Port Gamble, but thank you for joining us and welcome into the new year. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at ParaNWPod. Until next time, bye.